Welcome to Campaign US's first annual conference, Convene Creativity Converged. We are kicking off the day with our keynote speaker, Carl Banks, former New York Giant, NFL champion, and president of G3 Sports. By my third year in the NFL, I had developed a leather coat line for NFL and the NBA. No one had ever done it, so I looked for the white space. I found it. But my ultimate goal was to be a full-service sports apparel company. The ethics of AI, avoiding bias in technology-driven creative. To distill your brand into a series of prompts, or how you want to show up into a series of prompts, you have to actually have a very clear articulation of who you are, what you stand for, what needs to be in content that represents you. And some brands we work with have been on that journey for a long time, and they're on the activist kind of allyship end of of a spectrum and they know that very clearly and others aren't and so we're having to go through like ethical frameworks with brands. Today we're not just going to dive into how emerging technologies and platforms are transforming creativity but get hands-on experience creating and pitching an AI driven brief to a panel of creative legends, AI experts and marketing leaders. I love this uh, quote uh, from Contagious, the hardest job in the industry falls not to those who come up with great ideas, but those who risk their careers in approving them. On Tuesday, February 27th, in downtown New York City, campaign hosted Convene, Creativity Converged, our first conference in the U.S., The day touched on themes at the intersection of creativity and technology from how heritage brands are moving into the future to how brand building has transformed into building fandom among online communities. Of course, generative AI was a central theme throughout the day with speakers from major brands and agencies discussing how they're applying the transformative tech to their businesses and creative processes, how they're navigating some of the dangers and unknowns of AI and where they see it fitting into their organizations in the future. Our audience even got hands-on experience using generative AI tools to build a brand in a day, launching a drinks innovation for one of the newer sports at the Paris 2024 Olympics, which they then pitched to a panel of esteemed marketing, innovation, and creative leaders in a Shark Tank-style competition. But first, we kicked off the day with our keynote speaker, Carl Banks, a former New York Giant and president of G3 Sports. Banks talked about relaunching the iconic 90s brand, Starter, the power of heritage brands in an era of nostalgia and how he drew an early connection between sports, fandom, and culture. When you think about legacy brands, you think about brands like Coca-Cola, you think Levi's, you think even Nike right now, right? Um, If those brands haven't been damaged, they may have repositioned, right? But their connections with people, uh, where you were, what you were doing, when you were wearing, right? Uh, my championship jacket, I got my, you know. So my goal, I was sitting with my designers and I'm like, I want to do iconic jackets for movies. In the movie that I wanted to do a, a capsule was coming to America. And they had um, the Jets jacket with all the buttons on it and the New York Mets jacket. And those were starter jackets. So I went to the NFL because I was an outerwear licensee for the NFL, I said, I'm gonna do this jacket, but I need protection. I don't want someone to knock it off. So can I do this as starter? And they're like, well, you know, starter is no longer in the business, which I knew they're like, and it's selling at Walmart, but good luck. I'll put you in touch with the IP holder, which was Iconic Brands, Iconics Brands. And if they wanna do it, we'd love to have starter back in sport. And so I went to Iconics and I says, listen, I want to take your brand and bring it back into sport. They're like, well, we're winding down our Walmart. And everybody's like, well, the brand is tarnished. I'm like, the brand is not tarnished because they weren't selling sport at Walmart. They were selling basics. And I'm selling starter stories. I'm selling memories. I'm I'm selling legacy. And so if you bring the brand back and you, you nurture it the way it has always been presented, people gravitate towards right away. And I think um, bringing the brand back was not as a heavy lift as people thought it would be. And they, you know, they wanted to mock me for it, but I already knew the emotional connection with that brand existed and you just had to reignite that. Yeah, and you were correct. I mean, now Starter is kind of almost that like legacy culture, pop culture brand that you see on athletes, you see on celebrities. So think about this. Um, outside of the shoe brands, 
Can you name me one other sport brand, apparel, that is as, as iconic as Starter? Anyone? I can't. There's not one brand, there's not one apparel brand in sport that has been a part of every major American championship other than Starter. Yeah. So those are Starter stories. There's a story around the brand and that's why the connect it connects the way it, it does. Bailey, you caught up with Banks after the session. What was your really your biggest takeaway from what he said? My biggest takeaway was that diversity of thought is what matters. Instead of just having a bunch of diverse people on payroll, you need to actually be listening to them, elevating them, having them in leadership positions, and just actually listening to what they have to say and believing them that they know their communities and their identities well. What is your approach to diversity and inclusion and how do you bring that to your work at G3? Well, well I think with diversity and inclusion, it's not just checking a box and making sure there are different faces and different races. Diversity and inclusion, I think, is that of thought and participation, right? So um, I have people from different walks of life uh, that work within my ecosystem. Um, I want to know uh, their life experiences and how those experiences can lend to something that we're doing, right? And in doing that, you're being inclusive, right? And you want them to participate. So it's just not, you know, you walk my office and you see, you know, like I said, different races and different faces, but you see those people participating and um, being thought leaders into projects that, that we are working on. It checks a box, but it doesn't, like you say, if you're not listening and you're not, um, and you know, sometimes you can be tone deaf uh, with some ideas and people can say, hey, look, that just doesn't, it doesn't work here. or You need to rephrase something, you know, of that nature. So, Tell me a bit more about your perspective on Super Bowl advertising. Um, what gets it right and what doesn't? Well, it, what it takes to get it right is sometimes simplicity, right? Simplicity of thought. Um, it's super expensive. You can't overthink it. Just find out what your message is. You know your audience is there because you've already made the investment and create a really fun message. That's what it really comes down to. Like um, the Dunkin' Donuts was so thoughtless. It was it was genius. You know, just getting some guys together that, you know, they have Boston together, but none of this fit anything that they do, you know? So... Um, I just thought it was really great. And then, you know, some of the car ads are always pretty good, too. To you, what's the importance of brands integrating into lifestyle and pop culture? What power does that hold? Well, I think um, lifestyle and pop culture is what moves the needle, right? And it's where, that's where the energy is, right? If you want to connect, you have to build community. And your messaging has to be able to speak to the community that you're building. So pop culture, you see um, infused in everything from uh, video games to um, how traditional retailers promote. Like there's something infused that is pop culture related. So you have to look at that and and say, okay, how do, how do I build community within this 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 consumer base. He actually took it upon himself to sneak in that last comment about DE&I, which we didn't have a chance to get to. So I'm glad that you had a chance to follow up with him about that. Another really engaging session was our fireside chat with John Cook, the global CEO of VML, who had a really candid conversation with me about his plans for the future of this massive 30,000 person agency, how it's gonna stand out while offering simplified solutions for clients. We're talking a lot about simplification and um, obviously a big outcome of this merger is to make things simpler for your clients. Talk about like, I think I said earlier that you have, you know, every single modern marketing discipline under your umbrella, everything from commerce to branding to creative. So when you have such a breadth of capability, how do you make that simple for a client? Yep. Um not trying to make like a VML capabilities presentation, but we, we have all that, but I think lots of agencies have a lot of things. I think we kind of looked at it so we have depth in a lot of areas. Let's simplify it, and this is gonna sound a little crazy, but 
it actually has worked really well, which is let's divide everything into three expressions, brand experience or advertising kind of communications, customer experience, like the work with, the, with products and bringing customers closer to, to brands, and then commerce. In no particular order, those three are interchangeable. Everything we do is some cocktail of those three things coming together. So it may be a client that's heavy advertising, heavy brand, ex, brand experience, heavy commerce. That little cocktail is what we do. It's a difference from then the capabilities that drive those, those things. That's creativity, strategy, technology, data, technology, etc. So we're, it's a lot there, but like any company with a lot of stuff, it's simplifying it, brand experience, customer experience, commerce, whether a client or anybody knows what those are called, doesn't matter. It's just the perfect combination of those things coming together. That's what we're trying to get to. And we're not, I say perfect, that's the dream. We're not, yeah. like, no, we're not perfect on it, but that's how we simplify a lot of stuff to your, to your point. Yeah. And those are all, you know, I'm not hearing the, the typical like disciplines that you find at an right. agency, right? Creative strategy. Like what was, what went into the decision to, to create those buckets? The decision came because in a lot of agencies, what happens is, that's a good question because it's something we wrestled with a lot, but the decision came because in a lot of agencies, some, you know, eras of VML as well, creativity only gets associated with the brand experience work. And as an agency gets more relevant, more contemporary, just any agency that's that's having success right now probably has an element of commerce, big or small, a big element of customer experience. So the idea is let's not let creativity get pigeonholed to just brand experience. Creativity, so we do brand experience, customer experience, and commerce, but the point is creativity goes across all of it. So our commerce and our storytelling in commerce is as powerful emotionally as our advertising, is as powerful as our creativity and customer experience. That's creativity. It goes across all of them. Same with technology, same with AI. What happens in agencies is the creative department sometimes just gets totally associated with the advertising, the brand experience part. Then the other people are like, oh, those are the customer experience people down the hall, or those are the commerce people. We don't, we don't think that way. Um, and if somebody does think that way, it makes it easier to figure out who's going to be a leader in the company, because the people who think across those things tend to, tend to do well. Right. You want sort of multidisciplinary talent. Yeah. Um, Activity going through all of it. I mean, that's, yeah. 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 So another um, simplification we've been talking about is one thing that clients want. Another is agility and speed. How do you do that at such scale? How do you move quickly? Yeah, I do. I do get it because I think VML, like I said, I've been there VML for a long time in our <laughs> One of our fastest ways to growth 25 years ago, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, so it was like attacking big agencies. It's kind of ironic now <laughs> with things, but it was like, because we can go faster, more nimble. But what one you learn, I'm sure everybody's in different size companies, is what I don't get now is why, it's like, you'd be, you'd be hard not to be fast if you were us and had a lot, because we have a lot of people to, to, to do things. It's like, I, I sometimes people get so overcomplicated with it. Like, why wouldn't it be, why wouldn't we be able to go fast if we have a lot of people? If we have a lot of things, I'm kind of joking about that, but the, the truth is that maybe you get in your own way. Yeah. It, it, that's what happens. But as long as, if you can defeat the get in your own way thing, then, then you're like faster than anybody because you've got people everywhere that do everything that, and that's where culture comes in, hopefully love working together. We also talked a little bit about, of course, generative AI and emerging tech, where that fits into creativity. So Brandon, I know you caught up with John after our session. So let's hear what he had to say. On stage, you mentioned not wanting to project your own lack of fear surrounding AI to uh, your workforce. I imagine it's easier to communicate new AI capabilities to employees who are excited about it. How do you communicate to people who are more afraid of AI than you mm-hmm. are? Yeah, I think the, uh, one of the easiest, most available techniques for that is to, to instill confidence is to show examples, very real examples of in this case, AI, but a new technology working. I think what people have fear, and I, you know, we all have those things, um, or questions about something, it's because they can't grab onto it and see how it impacts their lives. If you can show people like that person using a new technology, AI, and doing it for something that they would have done before in a better way, then you just, it just feels real, and it doesn't sound as um, spooky or uh, job-eliminating anymore and, and all that 
You made a point to mention that uh, VML doesn't exactly have a formal headquarters. Do you find that it's just not necessary in a modern marketing world, or is it more just a thing that works for VML? It's strange. I do. I do like the idea of place. I like. I like physical locations. I like physical locations representing a company. Everything you'd like about a headquarters. But I just think. So I'm, I'm a kind of a headquarters-oriented person, but I just think our companies big enough and diverse enough in terms of its geography that it's impossible to pin down and label as being from one particular place. But it's interesting for me to say that because I do, I grew up with Kansas City as a headquarters. I I love that New York was the headquarters of YNR. I love that, you know, the Wonderman had more of a London headquarters. Uh, you know, so I, I believe in it, but I just think we're at a different era where you can have the spirit of a headquarters and it's actually stronger to have your global leadership team in multiple locations to represent different perspectives. John, you talked a lot about being a very big agency that has a lot of capabilities. How do you manage clients who may have unrealistic expectations of what you can do and how fast you can do it? Yeah, yeah, good, good question. I think um, it's, it's, it's a great point because it can sound so grand in the way that you, know, you might talk about it with all those things and, and all that scale. Um, I think it's about being really clear with a client partner on what we're going to need from them and those steps. I do believe we can always go as fast as needed with the qualifier that we still don't skip steps. You're still going to need certain things in our relationship to move as fast as you want and to be as complete as you want to be with the the connection between advertising, commerce, customer experience. We can do all that. We're prepared to do our part. It's about... Not so much setting timing expectations, but expectations of the steps and the access we'll need to be able to do those things, both speed from a client partner and also access to the right people to pull those things off. If it was easy to do those things together and to do them quickly, everybody would do it. There's barriers, and it's sometimes the barrier is the right access or the right collaboration. So we set those expectations when we're at our best, very clearly. You know, What stood out to you about John's session, Brandon? What was... Um kind of the most relevant bit that you thought was worth worth chatting about? Yeah. So what I got out of my conversation with John is that, you know, when you have an agency of this size, one of maybe the unforeseen consequences of it is clients having unrealistic expectations of not only what you can do, but how fast you can do it. Um, you know, he talked a lot about during the panel, and all of these different capabilities are really focusing on a you know core three. Um, by focusing on just three things, that's sort of one of the ways that he can help mitigate uh, some unrealistic expectations that either new clients or maybe even existing clients can have sometimes. Yeah, it's definitely challenging to meet, meet client needs. No matter how big or small you are, they always want a little bit of something else, right? Let's talk about some of the panels that we hosted. Jess, you moderated probably one of the most important topics of the day, which is about how the industry can navigate the unknowns and challenges of AI, of which there are many, from bias to copyright. A lot of times we focus on the excitement and opportunities of technology, but we thought it was really important to kind of put it in check a little bit. So many things can start at the brief, right? If you think about getting into a situation where you have actually briefed your team around diversity, around what's already been done, around um, the competition, and making sure that you're setting up a situation where the team understands what the possible biases are, that is so incredibly valuable. And then, you know, getting the client to know, too, that we have done the work in the upfront before we've even started the, the concepting process. That's just just such an incredible thing. So I think it's like the beta begins at the beginning of the process. And I, I'm, again, I'm just so blown away by the fact that that, that launched and went live because the hu- the human beings behind this should have just said, that's ridiculous, we're not ready. And so I think that's on us too, as clients and agencies to just say, okay, that's, that's ridiculous. We need a human component here. We need the diversity board to come in. We need, you know, that's what happens, right? What's the challenge here? Because I guess part of the issues of what we're seeing with AI is that that these tools are being rushed out at such um, velocity that maybe these checks and balances aren't being done because you really want to be perceived to be first. How do you 
How do you kind of tell your clients or your agency, like, we need to be a bit more thoughtful about this and maybe it's okay that we're not first? How do you bake that in? I love that you're doing the program that you're doing because it overlaps with something that we've been doing for the last three years around educating clients. And attribution is 100% critical when it comes to anything that we're doing that we're gonna put live. And so if you talk with the client at the brief stage and say, let's just talk about attribution. What are we doing here? Where are we pulling from? How are we paying for this? Let's slow down because a lot of our clients got really excited the procurement team said, bring the cost down, right? They, and then there's pressure on all of the clients to bring the cost down. So they look to AI and they say, oh, okay, well, that means 20 to 40% less than what I normally pay and you know, maybe 30% faster. So most of what we try to do is slow down and have the real conversations about legal, about quality of work. You know, That's the education moment that has to happen. One thing I'm kind of fascinated by in this discussion is what are the risks here? Because I think we talk about these fairly convoluted topics, you know, bias in AI, and we kind of know it's a bad thing, but I think it's always good to talk about why it's a bad thing. So have you, in your work, when you've been discovering issues, thought about um, or seen what the human or societal cost of you not correcting something could have been or maybe has been because it's already gone live? I mean, in the case of the Bacardi example, um, if the data that was used to fit in the machine um, was open, leaked or whatnot, one of the biggest producers in the world will have all of his work available for anyone to use, monetize and whatnot forever. So the implication is giant. Um, so I think it's that, and or his partnership, like this is somebody who's like commissioned by the Beyonce's of the world to produce a track. Hence, we really wanted to clone him in a way and have access to up and coming artists. But now if anybody abuses that and uploads something that is already kind of like taken, that's another thing then. So I think the, the human costs are real. That's obviously on a smaller scale, um, but it, it can be really bad, which is why, I mean, our case, to your point on the brief, that's great, because that was part of the, yeah. of the original ask versus looking at it after on like... Huge. It has yeah. to be yeah. so tight in the brief. Yeah, yeah I, I completely agree. Um, and I also think that um, you know, AI, GenAI has the potential to, the, the promise is hyper-personalization, right? Like resonance and relevance, like at a level that we haven't been able to execute before. We understood it and we understood it could be really valuable, but we've not been able to do it. Um, and if applied in the wrong way, not thoughtfully, without the right kind of consideration, then you have the risk of undoing years of positive work in DE&I. You have the risk of, you know, we have to think about who's making the tools, who's operating the tool, who prompts it. Like you, to your point, like are you are you conscious of that at the very beginning of the process, and then who's assessing what comes back and deciding if that meets criteria you commit to as a business or not? And we have those commitments and those criteria and processes when we work in a non-AI methodology, and we can't afford to let go of them when we're working in an AI methodology just because it's 40% faster or 40% cheaper. So I think it's it's really critical. Bailey, you caught up with Valerie Carlson, Chief Creative Officer at Critical Mass, and Rebecca Sykes, partner at the Brand Tech Group, after Jess's session to talk a little bit more about the panel. Let's hear what they had to say. Tell me more about the Brand Tech Group's bias breaker and how it works. The tool that we've prototyped is called the bias breaker. Uh, and it's kind of forcing a feature that doesn't exist as fully as we would like it to in uh, the large language models that we use for image generation. So uh, it uses roll of dice probability uh, and we configured six dice for six of the most common forms of diversity. Uh, so age, gender, disability, race, etc. Uh, and when you write a simple prompt into the tool, it rolls those dice and it adds between zero, one and two forms of inclusivity into your prompt. So it's giving you back a more sophisticated prompt that you can use in any image generation model. 
And what I love about that is that it's uh, introducing probability and taking away from the user the prompt needing to be tokenistic, uh, but it's also introducing the possibility of intersectionality, uh, which is fantastic and the model currently won't really give you. And thirdly, um, you can configure it for your particular DEI commitments uh, as a business. So you can make it quite bespoke and configured to the way that you need to show up as a brand. What are the ways in which bias is usually baked into generative AI tools? Yeah, I think there's three fundamental ways uh, that bias gets baked in. Uh, the first is in the funding that pours into this space. Only 2% of funding, AI funding, went to uh, more diverse founders uh, in the last year. Uh, it's in the people building the tools. Uh, if you just look at how many women, for example, are not on AI boards, not developing AI tools, I think that's a real challenge. Uh, and it's in the training data, which is, you know, by by definition, it's a it's a throwback. It's a it's a look at a previous world, you know, and therefore we're looking at historical representation which we know is is flawed so um, I think you know from just that look alone we we can we know how deep the bias exists inside of the model and we have to do more than just system prompt for better outcomes and we have to be really thoughtful about that and so I think uh, you know what we have built is just the first step a single prototype in how you move forward in this space but there is a lot more to do what do conversations with clients look like when you're approaching an ethical framework to Gen AI use? And when does using Gen AI not work for a campaign? Uh, yeah, it's a great question. An ethical framework is uh, by nature has to be quite bespoke to the brand. Um, and there are lots of things to consider. What category they're in, what the expectations of that category are, um, what kind of uh, product or service they, they market. Um, is it one that has performance as a key part of its uh, messaging strategy. You know, we talked a bit about efficacy brands in beauty, for example, or in skincare, uh, that kind of thing. Um, but also what are the existing uh, commitments and position of the brand in terms of allyship, in terms of their uh, commitments to DNI communities that might be underrepresented, that they strongly align with or support. Uh, and it goes then all the way through the process of, is what we're making accurate and representational, but also, if we're making it in AI, are we taking valuable uh, investment in underrepresented communities away from those communities? And therefore, how do we uh, either decide not to do that and decide that actually in these scenarios, in real life shoots are the right way for us to go and in real life representation is the better call for us? Um, or is it about how we make a uh, alternative contributions to those communities to still empower and enable them but in other ways. So I want to make sure that we're not taking efficiency and deploying that instead of efficacy or allyship. Valerie, how do you navigate discussions about creative ownership with clients when you're using Gen AI tools? I think one of the biggest biggest challenges we have as agency people is making things very clear and simple for our clients. They have, you know, so many stakeholders that they have to sell the ideas up the chain to. And, you know, often they're not natural storytellers. They're not people that have all these tools at hand. So what we have been trying to do is leverage every tool at hand from an AI perspective to take all of the guesswork out before we go live with something. And what I was talking about today was, um, you know, traditionally when you go to, you know, sell through the idea of a piece of film, it's a waterfall process. There, you know, you come up with a concept, then you come up with a script, and then you have boards, and then you have, you know, animatics, and and then you maybe get some, you have some conversation about like uh, the director, and then you talk a little bit about sound and voiceover, music, but none of these things are put together in the upfront usually in a way that they can go sell or that they can believe that they really understand what's happening. So we've put that entire process together and we've created what I've, I've just been calling it like an AI animatic. And it's shocking how much, you know, it's not faster for us to do it, but it's so much easier for the client to understand. And then they get to spend more time with the director and really thinking about, you know, the day, the sunlight, the location, and all the things that they really want to focus on. So that's been great. And how do you ensure artists are attributed fairly when you're using yes. these tools? Yeah, absolutely. So at Critical Mass, we have a program called Critical Mass Air. Um, it stands for Artists in Residence. And we started it three year, years ago, and we have a panel of artists that we work with um, from all different disciplines. It was headed up by Chantelle Martin, who is a, mu a mural artist, and she's worked in... Um, 
AR, all different kinds of disciplines, and what we were focused on prior to the evolution of AI is attribution from a paperwork perspective. So when you work with a brand, you sign some papers, you know, and it basically says you're signing away the rights for X amount of time, maybe in, in perpetuity even. And what we have been trying to do is educate brands and um, make sure that they don't do that to uh, artists. So now the evolution of that process is uh, making sure that we're, first of all, we're not using generative AI and going live with it outside of the sources that we talked about today, like our Adobe partnership, our Getty partnership, and then anything that we sign with artists themselves to make sure that we have control. Um, and then educating clients about the fact that if you are putting something out that is generative, um, it's, you know, there's the possibility that you're scraping a m multiple artists' work. That's not okay. Um, you know, there's a lot of conversations about fair use out there right now. In my opinion, fair use is you don't take someone's artwork and mash it up and put it live. What should platforms be doing to mitigate the spread of misinformation from Gen AI content? I mean, I think honestly, the technology platforms have so much knowledge and so much data at hand right now that they should be flipping the model and using it to educate people so that they understand not just like that an image is generated by AI, but that there was manipulation and has been manipulation on the platforms for decades. And so I really believe that it's not going to harm their business if they tell the truth. I do. And I think if they tell the truth, then we can start to make change and we can start to educate people. If they don't want to listen to that, that's fine. But I just think that, you know, putting a watermark on an AI image is a start, but it is the most minimal start. So what did you find most interesting about the discussion? I was really happy that Valerie reiterated that it's the least these platforms that we use every day, like X, Facebook, Instagram, well, I guess Meta as a whole, it's the least they can do to be honest about when AI is being used on their platforms, when something that is being shared on the platform is generated by AI. And she was very adamant that it's not that hard to tell the truth. They just need to do it. Um, and then Rebecca from the Brand Tech Group talked about the Brand Tech Group's bias breaker, which creates a more sophisticated and more inclusive prompt by bringing in probability, just like rolling the dice. And I thought that was interesting because then you don't have to tokenize in your prompts. You are able to include more um, intersectionality in your inclusivity as well. So it kind of helps you unbias your prompts that you put into the AI. Yeah, and it's important to do that like preemptively mm -hmm. instead of after the fact. Right, right. Yeah. That's interesting. Jess, did you have any thoughts about your panel that you moderated? Yeah, I mean, clearly this is a really important topic for the advertising industry. And I think one of the main messages that was coming out from the session is there needs to be a pause you know we need to agencies need to be better at telling their clients let's not rush to be the first to be out here and roll out a product that may have some issues societal issues bias issues but actually take the time to take a more ethical approach not necessarily wait for regulation to do that after the product has already live so that was a really like new way for the advertising industry to evolve I guess because up until this point it's been so much about racing to be first and racing to the bottom in a way so yeah the ad industry can be so competitive that it just gets in its own way in terms of embracing uh, technologies that aren't necessarily there and, and it's really important to take a step back with such a powerful tool. One of the more fun sessions of the day was the one that you moderated, Bailey, about sustaining hype and building loyalty in an era of fragmented attention. The speakers touched on how they've successfully built their brands by tapping into niche communities online and allowing them to co-create their stories. And so the only way that we as marketers can really cut through is that we have to be much more focused, we have to be much more intentional, and we have to kind of like level up our game and what we're coming to the table with so that what we are putting in front of them has the opportunity to actually disrupt in a positive way. I actually pulled an, a campaign article um, about how much people hate ads, which I, I, we all know that, right? But it was like, why do people dislike ads? And it was, um, 
It was a study, I can't remember um, who, who the, um, the source was, but like the number one reason was bombardment of what consumers dislike about ads. But the number one thing that consumers actually like about ads and wanted to see more of was entertainment. And so that's our jobs as marketers to come to the table with something that's adding value to consumers' lives. Yeah, it's, uh, it's funny from a fragmentation standpoint, you know, working for a gaming company, um, gaming has obviously exploded. It was already growing before the pandemic. It grew a ton, you know, partially as a result of that. But gaming itself has a tremendous amount of fragmentation. I mean, you look at Activision Blizzard, two of our biggest games, Candy Crush and Call of Duty. Couldn't be any different, right? From, uh, couldn't be any more different, I should say, from uh, both how people play them, you know, big AAA PC console title versus a mobile title, two completely different audiences, but both of them, tremendous amount of fandom. Huge communities that love these games, and brands have the ability not only to build fan bases for themselves, but to tap into the fan bases of those types of media properties and titles, because in doing that, you can engage with that sort of a community who is going to share the love for your brand, who is going to you know, be a great evangelizer, if you can do it authentically, right? You can't just slap your ad and, and hope, you know, we put it a place where, you know, people are, uh, there's eyeballs there, so people are gonna wanna, you know, see it. No, that's not the way it works. You're gonna have to find a way to do it organically and authentically, but those fan bases exist and brands can really benefit from engaging with them. You were talking about, like, authentically reaching the niche audiences you already have. Um, and I feel like that's, you're spending a lot of money to like reach a small audience. And so I'm interested in hearing like why you guys think that this works better than general marketing when it does work better than general marketing. Like what advantages do you see in maybe spending more to reach fewer people but actually do it consistently and authentically? Um, Caitlin, I'd love to hear your thoughts here. I know you have some interesting insights from Snap and like participation. Yeah, so I think I have a little bit of a different perspective because Snap isn't going for that niche audience. We really are a place for everybody, 13 plus. Um, but what I can speak to is um, how we've created a loyal fan base um, and a community. So Snapchat's audience is massive. We have 414 million daily active users coming back on average 40 times a day. Um, and there's been so many platforms that have come and gone, but Snapchat really has remained. 20 consecutive quarters of user growth. And so the, the why has Snap had this staying power um, kind of goes back to some of the conversation in the last panel. Um, it's the role that we bring or play in our users' lives, as well as our commitment to our brand values. Um, you may have seen some of our marketing lately. Um, less social media, more Snapchat. Um, Snap was really created as an alternative to social media, all about connecting with your friends, self-expression, exploring the world around you. Um, and it really is not about collecting followers or chasing vanity metrics. And one thing that we found that has really helped us keep this thriving community is that 90% of our audience says that the app makes them feel connected and happy, um, which is very different than our competitive set and something that as a mother of a 14-year-old Snapchatter, um, you know, I am very grateful for. Um, and there's benefits from an advertising perspective too. You know, research shows that you're more receptive to the messaging. But I think what's super important, kind of the TLDR on why Snap has been able to create such a positive, growing community, um, really is we, we lean into the value that we bring or the role that we play in our users' lives, as well as being authentic. I know we spoke about that, I think, in the earlier panel, but that authenticity is so incredibly important, especially as you get into the younger generations. Jess, you spoke with Soyoung Kang, uh, the Chief Marketing Officer at EOS Products, and Stephanie Jacoby, Global Brand Director at Smirnoff after the panel. Let's hear what they had to say. Soyoung, on the panel, you talked about how advertisers have a role to play and how fragmented attention has become because we slap ads on every corner of the internet. How are you at EOS navigating trying to entertain rather than disrupt and constantly bombard consumers with your ads? 
Yeah, so I thought it was really funny because we we started the panel talking a lot about how consumers are spending time across different platforms and how platforms have proliferated. And I thought, uh, you know, actually... We're part of the problem, too. This industry is part of the problem. We have proliferated. Any nook and cranny that exists, we jam an ad there. And it's understandable. It's human nature that the more you see of something, the more you're going to start to zone out and tune it out. And so it's actually not surprising at all that it would be harder to cut through in a more cluttered and fragmented environment um, because of how we've created that environment. We've created that system. But I think that the the trick for marketers is that, um, you know, that I've seen studies um, actually in, in campaign that have shown that while consumers want to see a lot less ad bombardment, they would like more of ad entertainment. And so it's not a necessary it's not necessarily a matter of how much we're advertising, but how well we're advertising and how do we make sure that the content, the storytelling, the narratives and the engagement are high quality. Another interesting area that you brought up on the panel was this concept of mini viral moments where you go viral within small communities, but that can ladder up to being a much bigger impact. Can you talk to me more about how you tap into that and how you end up converting those into larger moments? That's right. So, you know, a few years ago, we had um, our own viral moment, which, you know, even back then they were um, they were sort of like a gift from the heavens. You never knew when you were going to get one. But if you recall sort of the the heady earlier days of TikTok, you know, the 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 guy going down on his longboard with the with the cranberry juice and listening to Fleetwood Mac, like those moments of the tens of millions of views are a lot harder to come by today. And so marketers who are still striving for that as the holy grail, I think will be unfortunately most likely to be disappointed because like I said, they're very few and far between. But what is possible is to cultivate relationships with smaller pockets of communities. And so what we've actually um, started to really embrace is this notion of going what I call mini viral. And mini viral is not one thing that goes very, very far and wide, but it's a series of many things that may actually resonate within smaller pockets of communities. Because actually, if you flip the perspective, if you're not thinking about it as the marketer, but you're thinking about it as like, let's say the the consumer. If you're a consumer that sees um, a piece of content in social media three, four, five times, to you, that's viral. It doesn't matter that the three, four, five times those that video was only shown to 100 people. And so if you can cut through to authentically connect with specific dedicated communities, you actually can go viral within those communities. And what we've actually found and, and seen within our own experience is that it's those those um, pockets of mini virality actually start to break down and expand out from there. So these aren't things that just stay contained within a small community. They start to expand over time. It may take longer. It's not the same as the sort of like massive like tsunami mega viral um, thing that happens. So it does take a little bit longer to kind of start to saturate and seep out or, or, you know from the edges. But it does happen. I mean, we actually saw it in our body care um business where we've gone what I call mini viral across a pocket of dedicated fragrance enthusiasts on TikTok. Um, and they honestly have um, shared beyond to, to drive success where we're now the fastest growing body care brand across all of food, drug and mass. So it definitely is working. It just you just have to have the patience and um, have the, you know, frankly, the, the belief that it can cut through and work. You talked about how important social listening is to EOS and how you actually have used some of the real user comments about your products in a marketing campaign. Can you talk to me more about the decision behind running that and how it ended up really hitting with consumers? So so I really believe in the, the power of um, listening. I mean, listening in general, but also specifically social listening, because social listening is sort of like the engine that never stops It's like on 24-7. And so anytime you're looking for insight, you can find it if you dig hard enough. Um, for us, we've actually really found that when we um, listen, um, read the comments, dig in, truly spend the time ourselves, me, myself, spending the time actually with the content and really trying to understand what consumers and audiences are saying, that we can really uncover some really amazing insights. So one of the more recent insights that we uncovered is that people find that our, you know, body products, uh, which are scented body products, are um, their sort of secret to being irresistible to their partner. And I'm using like sort of, you know, like sanitized language they don't use words like that they use words like 
um, if you want to get flipped like a pancake, use this body lotion. And it was like dozens and dozens. I mean, there was no shortage of the kinds of comments that we were starting to see or people kind of like putting posting their testimonial, sharing very like openly and honestly about um, how this is like, helping in their relationship. And so what we really decided was like, you know, we can't copyright this any better than people are writing it themselves. And honestly, the, the content is like gold. And so all we need to do is basically make sure we can get the rights to it, package it up in some sort of, un, you know, uh, unexpected way, and then bring it back out to audiences. And it's their words, um, not ours. And so um, while... You know, maybe you would think that brands, it's surprising that a brand will put something out there like, don't wear this unless you want to go to pound town. <laughs> maybe that's surprising. But at the same time, if that's what consumers are actually actively saying about your product, why can't we say that as long as we're repeating back their words? Um, and so it's been actually like a fantastic journey. And, and most of all, people are tickled by it because it's not actually that shocking, given that that's the conversation that's already happening. Stephanie, we just came off a panel about sustaining hype and building loyalty in an era of fragmented attention. And I'm wondering for a brand like Smirnoff, which has a really long legacy, what that means for you. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a really good question. I think, you know, as a as the world's largest vodka brand and, you know, as a member of a very crowded category, I think marketing tactics that would have worked a decade ago that are about kind of mass engagement, mass marketing, um, don't work as well anymore because they don't cut through and they don't differentiate your brand. And I think particularly as a legacy brand that we've been around for 150 years with each new generation of consumers trying to figure out how to make yourself relevant to that audience. And I think what we've really seen, particularly with Gen Z, pushing for even more authenticity, brands engaging in really credible ways that you know brands are having to be really smart about figuring out where these fan bases exist, what they are interested in, and engaging in a way that isn't about just advertising, but about creating value within that community of consumers um, in a way that's really lasting and that that fan base then has the potential to amplify on your behalf, which is the power of it. You also talked about your strategy to engage Swifties and how that required you to be really nimble as a brand. I'd love if you could talk more about how you can be agile, but also protect your brand. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think we're always kind of looking for what are the conversations happening in culture? And then, you know, as teams around the world, you know, because we're a brand that's sold in 165 different countries, we have marketing teams who come to us and kind of say, hey, guys, we have this great opportunity. Lavender's huge in culture. We're seeing it show up in fashion. We're seeing it show up in beauty. And we have this opportunity and think that we could insert Smirnoff Ice into this conversation in a really fun, credible way. And I think that navigating that space and keeping it at you know th that lavender lemonade, leveraging the popularity of that flavor and that color was a way for us to insert ourselves into a relevant cultural conversation while still being respectful, um, of you know IP and properties etc so I think that was just and that allowed us to be really responsive and agile which was exciting. Towards the end of the panel you talked about Smirnoff's long commitment to the LGBTQ community. We have seen in the past year there has been a retraction of brands committing to that cause. How do you sustain investment amidst all of the chaos that has erupted in the past year. Yeah, and I think it, it, again, it goes back to that foundation and knowing what your brand stands for. And I think that consistency over time of Smirnoff always being a brand that's been about everyone and being about taking away barriers to marginalized communities to be able to participate in the party. Like, as I said, the party's better when everyone is invited. And I think that's something that we believe in so deeply and it's not it's not a political message it's just simply a belief that the world is a more magical place when different people flavors ingredients come together and so I think everything we do is underpinned by that so I think when we face challenges when we see brands kind of dipping their toe in and then backing away that just screams of the inauthenticity that consumers are so mindful of. And so I think a brand like Smirnoff, who 
We know what we stand for. We've stayed the course over decades. Again, it's not about being political, but it's about having that North Star that really guides us um, and, and gives us the confidence to keep driving that conversation forward, even in the midst of challenging cultural conversations. So what was your main uh, curiosity after hearing this discussion, Jess? In the room, uh, Sue Young's comments about the marketing approaches they've taken at EOS did spur a lot of laughter. You know, there were some very not safe for work approaches that they've taken. But I do think one area that she was talking about is the responsibility that advertisers have played in just bombarding consumers with ads and every single corner of the internet. Because I do think it's quite easy for the advertising industry to pass a lot of that blame onto tech platforms. You know, obviously Bailey earlier was talking about um, comments that Valerie had made about uh, Meta not doing enough to address AI, but obviously the advertising industry also has a very large role in a lot of these things. So Young was talking about how essentially we need to be a bit more mindful of consumers' time. And what was interesting is it tied very closely to a lunch roundtable I actually hosted with Dept. We were talking about creativity and commerce and how difficult it is now with shortening attention spans and, you know, reaching out to consumers in the Black Friday chaos. And I think actually acknowledging that we've played a part in this and maybe we should focus a bit more on entertaining consumers rather than just bombarding them with the same ad 20 times is a really key learning Yeah, there was actually, looking back, a lot of introspection, right, from marketers on some of the panels that we hosted. So that was really cool. Bailey, did you have any takeaways from your panel? Yeah, I mean, I really appreciated all the examples of spending, of of brands spending more time and more resources, more money at the end of the day to reach niche audiences like gamers or Swifties. Maybe we're not so niche. Um, (laughs) Like in a real authentic way that's not just as So Young said in the panel, slapping an ad on something. Um, as a Swifty, I feel like I talk about this in every podcast I've ever Our done. Our listeners, I think, know you're a Swifty, yeah. Bailey. <laughs> Everybody, I'm a Swifty. Um, <laughs> none of us really appreciate like slapping the word era or reputation or karma on a branded piece of content. It's not doing a bunch of work. It seems kind of lazy. So actually spending time and effort to create a product or a bespoke campaign for a community will make it work better. And also, So Young also said that she, like, EOS basically, like, creates their own communities. And then you're kind of guaranteed to go viral Mm. in that in that like ecosystem, which I thought was a really cool approach. Yeah. She had a good point about like, if you go viral in one community, in a bunch of different communities, then you're viral. You don't need to like take over the internet. You just need to like reach the community you want to reach. So awesome. So then we ended the day with a pitch competition. This is our uh, drink. It's called post hang. It is um, aimed at surfers It has all of the ingredients and vitamins that are going to help restore your body after getting crushed by the waves. Ladies and gentlemen, introducing FitMix. FitMix is at the nexus of hydration and technology. Drink smarter, not harder. Sipsu! And and we're seeking a million dollars for 2% of our company. Tools are great a great resource for us to kind of dig in uh, and help expedite our research process. And so we use that pretty heavily to identify of the areas that we want to focus on. So we actually organized our audience into groups and they were given a tool from the and partnership, which was our partner on this session. And um, they were able to play around with a bunch of different AI tools to come up with a concept for a drink for one of the newer Olympic sports in the Paris 2024 Olympics. Basically, they were able to get their hands on generative AI tools and come up with a brand and a launch plan in a day. And then they pitched that to a panel of our our experts, um, which included Luis Miguel Misianu, who's the founder, president, and chief creative officer of Mel, 
Oliver Feldwick, Chief Innovation Officer at the VN Partnership, and Meredith Arnold, Executive Director, Head of Advertising at E-Trade from Morgan Stanley. So what were some of your guys' observations from that session, whether it's, you know, how the audience used AI or just some of your favorite ideas? Brandon, I'm going to start with you. Yeah, I'd say I'll start with my favorite ideas um, because I think the ones that I tended to prefer were the ones that clearly had like a strong creative foundation in a way that didn't clearly over rely on AI to do all of the work. So for example, the rock climbing one that I'm forgetting the name of at the moment, but it was very good. <laughs> um, oh shout out to you guys for, for that one. Um, there were some really smart connections and plays on, you know, crashing uh, energy wise, mentally, and also the crash pad portion of, of rock climbing. Maybe AI is capable of of putting together like connections like that. I tend to believe that that's a little bit more of like human ingenuity and uh, creative. And then they they tended to let the AI you know not carry a majority of of that work. So those were some of my favorite works, I guess. That definitely seemed to be a takeaway um, when some of the pitches were talking about how they used AI. They said when they would prompt the AI, if it was a really unique original idea, it wasn't necessarily coming back with what they were looking for because it hadn't really been invented. And I think that was one of the takeaways they were mentioning is that really shows the role of the human in this is AI can't at this moment in time concept original ideas. It can maybe reframe something that already exists. Yeah, for sure. I think one of the coolest parts of watching it was just seeing how the teams used AI and their learnings from that. Uh, Bailey, what what did you take away from that session? I tend to agree with Brandon on a lot of what he said about the creative aspect, like making sure that there was a human element in there as well. Um, my favorite pitch was the post-hang beverage I just thought it was a really interesting idea it was for surfers and it was like it was bringing in like hang 10 the like little mm -hmm. surfer catchphrase that everybody knows and also like post hang like after a long night out you're you need something that's like refreshing and I thought that their callbacks to the 90s and nostalgia were really thought out in a way that wasn't just like trying to reach 90s kids. It was, mm. it actually made sense for their pitch mm -hmm. and didn't feel like a stretch. Yeah, I, I also, I, this is maybe a hot take. I actually think the AI generated like visuals looked really good. I know we, you know, we like to make fun of like fingers looking stupid and but like a lot of the drinks looked very cool maybe unrealistically cool, right? Yeah. Like with the, the like the lighting and the, the shapes of the bottles that AI was able to pull off. I don't know that maybe we can make bottles that look like that, but. Uh. Cause I love playing devil's advocate. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't, I don't know if I necessarily agree. I mean, I, yes, the AI did a good job of coming up with quick ideas and, you know, we didn't give them, we didn't give the teams much time to work on this. I think maybe it was two hours in total of when they were together. So the fact they had a visual representation of their ideas is really key. But one thing I've been really curious about with all of these like agencies investing in AI tools is are these fit for purpose in terms of, can you even show it to a client, let alone put it in a live environment? And I think by and large, what we saw was not really client ready just because of the volume of mistakes that AI continues to make. So yeah, I think that really kind of pokes a bit of a hole in where we currently are as an industry when it comes to AI. Yeah, I would agree. I said, I, I think most of the um, examples that people used on stage for in terms of how they use AI, our speakers, not our, not our audience was more about concepting and, you know, creating ideas to pitch more quickly but no one's actually ready to use it in client work. Some some brands are, but a lot of a lot of the uh, hesitancy is around what your panel explored, Jess, which is just the unknowns of this technology. And speaking of fingers, there was a comment in during the pitch competition about it being really hard to get the surfer hand. Signal, I think they right? did actually a good job. Yeah. I didn't even think about that until they said it. I was like. This hand actually looks good though. Yeah. But we were we were actually talking at our desk before about how all the images had the same vibe to them, which to me was like the persistence of memory by Dolly. It just had that like 
aura to the photos. I don't know. They all had the same kind of style. Very dystopian. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, you know, kind of fitting because AI is a little dystopian and terrifying Mm -hmm. in its own way. (laughs) So that wraps the day. It was a really engaging and interesting day of content. Thank you so much to everyone who stopped by and participated, especially those of you who stuck around for the pitch. It was super fun. Our sponsors, of course, were awesome and allowed us to make this happen. And you can check out more recap content on campaignlive.com and some, some stuff on social media. We can't wait to make this event even bigger and better next year. So everyone make sure to get your tickets early. Um, we're not launching next year's event yet because I might collapse if we do that today, but we'll, we'll get, (laughs) we'll have more info for you soon. And we will be back next week with our regularly scheduled campaign chemistry podcast. Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.